G'day, and welcome back to the Australian Histories podcast. This week, in episode 8, we're going to begin exploring the catalyst for the Cali outbreak, the Fitzpatrick incident, which set off the chain of events that brought the whole family to grief and the people of Victoria to a state of shock. It began in the last episode with Constable Fitzpatrick from Greta, firstly ingratiating himself with the Callies, and then, following official instructions, relentlessly pursuing them for every petty crime he could pin on them. We'll start with a brief look at his background, and then we'll talk about the circumstances around the pivotal incident that enveloped them all. But first, the usual reminder. We are making our way through this Kelly saga chronologically, so the very beginning of Ned's story starts in Episode 3, Beverage, If you're new to the Australian History Podcast, you may like to begin the in-depth story of the Kellys at the beginning, Episode 3, Beverage. And also, let me remind you that I'm very aware that the Kelly story to this day can divide people's thinking in quite an emotional way between those who might see him as a working-class hero driven to outlawry and others who feel he was an incorrigible thug and gangster from an early age and who made outrageous excuses for his criminal behaviour. As discussed in the overview episode, number two, I do not intend to push a barrow for either end of that spectrum, but I simply wish to present what we know, some of the commentary that's been put forward over time, and to simply retell what is a very interesting and undeniably important historical and cultural story, leaving all the Kelly enthusiasts or the Kelly critics to continue to hold their own opinions and conclusions. There's certainly evidence and opinion to support both views. For those of you without a firm opinion one way or another, at the end of the Kelly series, you should at least have enough information to ponder over and to draw your own conclusions too. Remember there's some supporting material on the website for this episode at www.australianhistoriespodcast.com.au along with contact details there as well if you'd like to get in touch. I hope you're finding that I'm relaxing into this process a bit more and the sound is improving. It's a bit of a process but I'm getting the hang of it now and we're getting into the meaty bits of the Kelly story now too so it's very exciting to share them with you. So now let's get on and look at episode 8. Constable Fitzpatrick and the Callies. Constable Alexander Fitzpatrick was born in 1856 at Mount Edgerton, another gold mining town just northwest of Melbourne. And he joined the police force aged 21. When he was sent to the Greta area, it seemed that the authorities had once again chosen a man of dubious character particularly in relation to his behaviour towards women. He'd begun building his poor reputation with women in Meredith by seducing and then deserting Jessie McKay and the resulting illegitimate child. At least joining the police force, he had the means to pay her maintenance. On being stationed then at Richmond, just east of Melbourne City, it was not long before he'd begun a relationship there too with an Anna Savage, In the new year, Fitzpatrick had promised to marry Anna by Easter, but he failed to do so, even though Anna had also by then become pregnant to him. By July, with no wedding having taken place, Anna's mother wrote to Chief Commissioner Standish, asking him to use his influence. On this occasion, Standish took some action, and he demanded an immediate interview with Fitzpatrick. 
Local gossip was already guessing it was something to do with a girl. Standish had failed to act on any of the previous rumours and reports about unfit police stationed in the northeast, or in relation to the murderous behaviour of Hall, for example, but he seems to jump when there's a sexual scandal involved, such as lecturing Flood regarding his affair with Annie Kelly, and now calling Fitzpatrick in. Standish was an influential man, and surprise, surprise, Fitzpatrick and Anna were married only a few days later, their baby being born that September. I'm not really sure Anna's mother did her a great favour in the end, though. Poor girl. When Fitzpatrick first arrived in the Greeter area, he initially befriended Ned, but after that drink-spiking incident and the subsequent charge of drunken disorderly that we talked about in Episode 7, and the charge which sent Dan to jail at Beechworth, any friendly relationship he may have managed with Ned was unlikely to have survived. And, as I've mentioned before, there were rumours of him earlier having formed some kind of inappropriate relationship with the young Kate Kelly on his arrival there too. If true, those Kelly girls were really hopeless. Surely steering clear of the cops at least would have been a wise move, given all the past angst. There must have been other young men to provide amusement in the region. My goodness. But, of course, the pursuit and interest may have all been on Fitzpatrick's side. In April 1878, Fitzpatrick was sent from Benalla to take charge of the Greta police station for a week while the senior constable was away, and he may have been keen to prove his worth in that role. Unwisely, he decided this was the time to arrest Dan for a recent horse theft charge. His actions were to precipitate what would soon after become known as the Kelly Outbreak. Also mentioned in the last episode, number seven, Superintendent Nicholson had declared the Kelly homestead a, quote, dangerous place, unquote, and he stipulated that to attend the 11 Mile Creek selection alone was against his express orders. But Fitzpatrick ignored this and he decided to go alone anyway. His motivations are likely to have been mixed. Certainly there's some evidence to suggest that he wasn't entirely sober, having stopped at a hotel owned by David Lindsay on the way. He may have wanted to impress the force management while in charge, at a time when employment, even in the police force, was a little shaky, with all sorts of political and financial turmoil going on in Victoria's government at the time. It's worth noting, though, I'm not sure that breaking the express rules of Superintendent Nicholson was the best way to impress, though, I suppose... If he succeeded in nabbing a Kelly, they might have been happy enough to look the other way. The actual result was probably initially pleasing to them, but over time it escalated into a disaster which saw police behaviour being investigated via the Royal Commission, so probably not the kind of public attention that Standish was keen on in the end. And another suggestion was raised at the later Royal Commission, suggesting he actually had tacit encouragement for his actions on that night from Sergeant Whelan at Benella. So there's also mixed messages coming from the Force Command to those at the bottom rungs. When asked, did Sergeant Whelan know that you were to arrest Dan Kelly if you got the chance? He answered, yes, he was aware of it. But whatever his motives, his decision to ride out alone led to a disastrous chain of events for the Kellys and for many other local families. At the Kelly homestead, Ellen was home, looking after her two-day-old baby, Alice King, along with the other children, Jack King, three, Ellen King, four, Grace, twelve, and Kate, about fourteen years old. 
Fitzpatrick arrived unannounced, asking for Dan. He was not at the house, but finding him in the yards, he appears to have invited himself in to wait while Dan prepared to accompany him to greet her. With his womanising history and his earlier opportunities to arrest Dan, it's been suggested that the visit to the Kellys was more to do with that unhealthy interest in young Kate than a desire to do his duty too. What occurred next has been the subject of conjecture from that time on. Author Keneally recounts a version told to him by Tom Lloyd years later, which describes Fitzpatrick finding Dan at the stockyard and requesting that he should accompany him back to the police station to answer the horse theft charges. It would seem that Dan was not very concerned about having to answer those charges, as he was not involved in the theft and would expect to walk free. So Dan agreed to accompany Fitzpatrick to the police station, but he asked to be able to eat a meal first and get a change of clothes. Fitzpatrick agreed and then sat down at the table inside the Kelly home, waiting for Dan. Many, including Ned, blame Fitzpatrick's unethical behaviour there and the following fabrications entirely for the compounding tragedies that were to come. Fitzpatrick claimed that while he was waiting for Dan, the family suddenly attacked him. Alan began to object to his presence and struck him on the head with a fire shovel, leaving a dent in his helmet. He claims Dan then began to scuffle with him. And right at that moment, Ned burst in the door, with skilling in tow, and Williamson then appearing from the bedroom, all armed. Ned then fired at him with his revolver one bullet hitting his wrist. Well, the Kelly's version is that while waiting, Fitzpatrick had leaned over and made an unwelcome advance to Kate as she passed him, pulling her onto his lap. In response, Alan hit him with the fireplace shovel to encourage him to release Kate, and Dan, of course, also leapt to her defence. In the scuffle that then took place, Fitzpatrick fired a shot or two, and in disarming him, Fitzpatrick's wrist was injured, probably on the door latch, as he was flailing about. Ned initially claimed he was not even at the homestead at that time, being over the border in New South Wales selling stock. But Tom Lloyd's account, years later, has Ned appearing at the door just as Fitzpatrick was drawing his own police revolver, and so he and Dan grappled with him to disarm him. There were likely some other men outside the house that were in the company of Ned that night, but not Skilling, who was elsewhere off the property. And we do know from Hall's unpunished actions earlier that the senior police at the time were not very concerned about constables firing on, well, the Kellys at least. So Fitzpatrick pulling out his gun is not an unlikely action, really. And despite what was originally claimed, Ned was probably there keeping out of sight on the property and only entering the house when he heard the ruckus. Fitzpatrick further claimed that after pulling a gun on him, Ned fired two shots from a small pistol, one bullet lodging in his wrist. He said that the Kellys then forcibly cut the bullet out of his wrist, so it could not be used as evidence, and then they sent him packing. Certainly Fitzpatrick did arrive back at the Winton Hotel with a wrist injury of some kind, and there he had a calming drink and his injured wrist was bandaged. He then rode on with the publican, Lindsay, back to Benalla, arriving late and rousing Sergeant Whelan to report that he'd been attacked by Ned Kelly. Perhaps Fitzpatrick's version was partially concocted to hide his attempted sexual assault, realising his indiscretion being there in the first place, and partly to bring vengeance on the Kellys. 
It's hard to know if he understood the severity of the actions that would arise from his report, or if he cared at all about the truth and the ongoing consequences. Perhaps it was the Kelly's version that was largely fabrication. Certainly Ned was not beyond twisting the truth to his advantage. But that an armed Ned Kelly would suddenly burst in the door just as an unprovoked altercation began, and would then recklessly fire away with a revolver at close quarters, in a room filled with Kelly women and children, it just seems incredulous. He was said to have been a good shot, and really should have been able to land any shot he fired at Fitzpatrick. But with his mother and the baby so close by, surely not so irresponsible as to try. It's much more likely that he was wrestling the police gun from Fitzpatrick. Also in his statement, Fitzpatrick made the dubious claim that when he regained consciousness after Ned had removed that embedded bullet with a penknife, Ned told him, quote, He would not have fired if he had recognised it was his old friend Fitzpatrick from happier days, unquote. Hmm, not dodgy at all. His statement had the murderous Ned aided and abetted by Alan and Dan, and by Williamson and Skilling, both men also being fortuitously armed with revolvers, ready for a confrontation. And so Fitzpatrick's dubious statement now gave the police the evidence they needed to break the audaciousness of the Kelly clan with very severe charges. While Whelan felt no urgency to immediately arrest the attempted murderers, though only a few miles away, he recognised that news of this incident, as told by Fitzpatrick no matter the accuracy, would greatly please Standish and Nicholson in Melbourne. They now had the sworn evidence which would rid Greta of the troublemakers. Dr John Nicholson was called to tend to Fitzpatrick's wounds, finding two injuries, one and a half inches apart, one of which, in his opinion, may have been caused by a bullet. But he did note, obviously at least a little sceptical, that it was only a skin wound, with no tendon injury or much blood loss. So again, the evidence does not strongly support Fitzpatrick's telling of the story. A shot at close quarters like that should shatter the bone and cause a great deal of damage. And the digging out of a bullet by unskilled persons would be likely to result in a great deal of additional tissue damage too, no doubt. Immediately after the incident, Dan, and one presumes Ned if he was there, had wisely scarpered off into the ranges, back to the Bullet Creek hut they had used in difficult times before. But with no police arriving straight away, Alan went about her business at Eleven Mile Creek, perhaps believing the altercation would blow over and not realising there was anything more to fear. Bricky Williamson and Bill Skilling, who both consistently disputed they were involved at all, made no attempt to head for the hills. They had no idea they were named as Ned's accomplices in Fitzpatrick's report. If the skirmish was anything like an attempted murder and they were involved, surely they would have taken off immediately too. It just seems more logical and likely that Fitzpatrick had quite substantially embellished a minor skirmish with one or more of the Kelly boys into this surprising and violent attack. Maybe there was some face-saving involved, or some butt-covering, seeing as he shouldn't have gone out there alone in the first place. But the situation was indeed serious, and it was about to intensify. Based on Fitzpatrick's and Lindsay's statements, warrants were drawn up for Ned, who, quote, did wound with intent to murder the informant, Alexander Fitzpatrick, a police constable whilst in the execution of his duty by shooting him with a revolver, unquote. Warrants were also sworn for Dan, Allen, Williamson and Skilling, 
who, quote, did aid and abet Edward Kelly, unquote. Though interestingly, no warrants were drawn up for Maggie or Kate, both of whom were also there during the incident. The following morning, it was decided that Sergeant Steele, accompanied by Constable Brown, would lead an expedition to Eleven Mile Creek. They spent many hours observing the homestead from a distance, and at about 9pm, they arrested Williamson. He claimed later that the arrest took place on his own selection, next door, about half a mile away, and not at the Kellys, as Steele testified. He denied being inside the Kelly house or even seeing Fitzpatrick the evening before, let alone being involved in the fracas, but he was taken back to the Greeter lock-up to answer the formal charges anyway. Senior Constable Strawn then joined the police party returning to Eleven Mile Creek for the others. They entered the Kelly homestead around midnight, arresting Maggie's husband, Bill Skilling, and arresting Alan Kelly. Skilling also strongly protested his innocence, not being present at Eleven Mile Creek at the time Fitzpatrick's visit the evening before, but again to no avail. In Keneally's book, originally published in 1929, he has a reproduction of a letter he received the year before from Williamson in 1928, so that's about 50 years after the night in question, recounting his arrest and attesting to his complete innocence of anything to do with the Fitzpatrick assault on that evening, which I'll quote here slightly abridged to focus on the relevant information. I would like to give you an account of my arrest. In the police evidence, they said they arrested me at the Kelly's house. I was arrested at my own selection after coming in from a hard day's splitting, fully half a mile from the Kelly's house. They, the police, only came for information, and I refused to give them any. When they could get nothing out of me, Sergeant Steele said, put a pair of handcuffs on him. One of them covered me with a revolver, although I was already handcuffed. He told me afterwards that he nearly shot me, as he intended to have one. They arrested us, one at a time, although they could have taken us all together. They got me to greet her, and I believe they would have let me go then, had I given them any evidence. The next one they brought in was Skillion, who said, They cannot do anything to me. I am innocent. But they did all the same. Then they brought two more in. Ned Kelly's mother and Alice King, the baby the only one they didn't lay a charge against. It was by then some time in the morning. Ellen's baby Alice, only a few days old, presented some problem for the arresting police, but it was finally decided to take both mother and baby into custody at Greta. Now here again, the Royal Commission brought out some challenging evidence from the arresting officers. Though the evidence was given within only a few years of the incident, it seems that Sergeant Steele had no recollection of Alan's arrest to report under oath to the commissioners, and so clearly at least some of his evidence was incorrect. He recounts, Commission question. Had Mrs. Kelly an infant with her when you arrested her? Sergeant Steele. I do not think so. I do not think at the time. I think she had a child in jail, if I recollect rightly. So that's interesting. Where was Sergeant Steele when all that negotiating about take the baby, don't take the baby went on? While arresting Ellen, Sergeant Strawn had asked her some questions about what had gone on, the things that Fitzpatrick had reported. But Ellen denied Fitzpatrick's version had ever taken place. Indeed, she claimed not to have seen Ned for four months, a claim which Kate corroborated though I suspect this was an attempt by both of them to keep Ned out of it. So off they went in the middle of the night to greet her. 
In the morning, a dray was arranged to take Alan and the baby and the two men over to Benella to await a committal hearing there, all three of them initially being charged with a fray, though the charge was later amended to aiding and abetting attempted murder. Now, for a time, Ned generally held with that story, that he was in New South Wales at the time of Fitzpatrick's visit, but we know the family members were practised at devising and sticking with alibis for each other, Ned possibly uttering his first perjury as a child witness for his uncle's stock theft trial all those years back in Wallen. So I think we can discard that assertion. In the years that followed, a couple of witnesses attest that Ned later conceded that he was there on that night and that he did indeed burst into the room once the scuffle had already started. And he claims that he was forced to intervene in order to assist his brother in disarming a police officer who had already fired recklessly in the house, the bullet lodging in the roof. So I think we can assume that he was present for the latter part of Fitzpatrick's visit, if not actually armed and firing on him. The exact order and timing of these actions is important in discerning cause and effect, attempted murder or self-defence by one party or another. But, sadly, we cannot know for certain. What does seem reasonable to say is that Fitzpatrick did, at the least, disobey his orders and act unwisely in going to the Kelly's 11 Mile Creek selection alone. He was quite likely to have been at least mildly drunk, having been consuming spirits in the hotel on his way there, and his past salacious behaviour towards women, and the known behaviour of other police in the Kelly women's lives, makes Ellen's responses and explanations quite viable. He made a pass at Kate and was struck on the head with a shovel in response. Now, the hitting over the head of men making inappropriate advances, well, that was an old defence tactic of Ellen's. Just ask James Kelly at the Burning Greta Hotel. After Fitzpatrick being tolerated in her house for at least an hour without attack, it seems credible that he must have then made some move to provoke the family. Of the alleged shooting and his injury, we cannot know, with their stories here being so far apart. All involved are less than entirely credible and trustworthy, and they were certainly practised and adept at delivering stories sympathetic to their own causes. But the scepticism of the doctor should be weighed. The injury was slight and unlikely to have been a bullet shot, subsequently dug out with a penknife. And Ned is highly unlikely to have fired shots in his own home with his family about, even if he was in attendance. Keneally, in his original pro-Kelly first edition in 1929, a book that he claims was written to, quote, give the world the only complete, reliable and authentic history ever published, unquote, so only a little bit partisan then, has uh, Tom Lloyd recounting to him the story as it probably came directly from the Kellys. Tom, in constant contact with Ned and the gang, would have had a lot of time to discuss it during their subsequent forced hideout at Bullet Creek. This version had Fitzpatrick making a pass at Kate, being immediately set upon by Alan and Dan, the constable then drawing his revolver, just as Ned appeared at the door. Fitzpatrick aimed at Ned and Dan grappled with him, a bullet then being fired into the roof. The injury to Fitzpatrick's wrist was no more than a graze from the door latch inflicted as the boys tried to disarm him. And that Skilling was not at the house that night, and Williamson not involved, though there is speculation there may have been a couple of other men with Kelly, who Fitzpatrick seems unable to identify. 
Skilling and Williamson were known to be living at Eleven Mile Creek or nearby and working there, so pretty much part of the troublemaking clan anyway, and so perhaps Fitzpatrick just named them. Again, there's no clear factual information that we can rely on. Williamson's letter, mentioned earlier, also says some other interesting things, and I'll quote a couple more abridged um, sections taken from the 1969 edition of Keneally's book. He first wrote about his recollections of the arrests, as we heard above, from all those years back, but then he also goes on to say more about the night in question and who else was and was not involved, as well as talking about the aftermath of the arrests. Quote, I felt sorry for poor Skillian, as he did not even know what he was arrested for. But I blame myself for Skillian being arrested, as he was mistaken for Burns. I pulled Burns back in the dark when he was going into Fitzpatrick's presence at the Kelly homestead after the brawl. Had I let Burns go forward, Skillian would not have been in trouble. The judge never read the evidence. He got it all out of the papers before the trial. The papers had us already convicted. When he, Judge Barry, was summing up to the jury, he said, Well, gentlemen, you all know what this man Kelly is, but they, the jury, were a long time before they came in with their verdict. After we were sentenced, Fitzpatrick was escorting us to jail. He had a handkerchief over his eyes and he said, Well, Billy, I never thought you would get anything like that. I was released after the Royal Commission. Whether Fitzpatrick had anything to do with that, I don't know. So he appears to confirm that he was at the house but outside, and that Joe Byrne was with him. He appears to confirm that Skilling was not involved, and even appears to note that Fitzpatrick never intended his actions to result in such harsh sentencing for the three. Poor old Skilling seems the most shocked. And the final interesting thing that Williamson's noted was the following. Ned Kelly sent word to us to hang something out of the window of the cells we were in, and he would come and stick up the jail and rescue us. But I did not like the idea of it, and I persuaded Skillian not to have anything to do with it. So that's an interesting twist. Just a note to follow up on those quotes you've just heard. Joe Burns is written in this book as Byrne, and Skilling is written as Skillian. These name variants were not uncommon in that era, particularly in less educated communities. So you can see these variants are displayed in a number of historical resources. I've read them as written, so you might have noticed the slight name changes there, but you know who we're talking about. So, with this first-hand account also in line with Tom Lloyd's, I think we can assume Tom's is likely to be the closest to the truth, more likely actually, as it was recounted years later when no further damage could have occurred from the truth. Ned and Dan being long dead, and the others already having served their sentences, Tom's version certainly does put Ned there at the scene. And this is the problem with the Kelly history of constantly lying. Ned lies about this, and then we're forced to consider the truth of all else he says in relation to the incident. All versions must be treated with scepticism, and we cannot simply take his or anyone's word for it. But... The weight of evidence points strongly to Fitzpatrick's version being inflated at least, and certainly dangerously unreliable as firm evidence for any potential conviction. Now, the immediate family very rarely talked about these incidents publicly over the following years, despite the great public interest, but in 1911 the elderly Ellen Kelly described the altercation to a Sydney journalist, B.W. Cookson 
In part, she said, quote, Fitzpatrick started the trouble. He had no business there at all, they tell me. No warrant or anything. If he had, he should have done his business and gone. He tried to kiss my daughter Kate. She was a fine, good-looking girl, Kate. And the boys tried to stop him. He was a fool. They were only trying to protect their sister. He was drunk and they were sober. Unquote. So we might assume from the plural, the boys tried to stop him, that Ned was there, despite what he said originally. The author Jones even claimed that brother Jim Kelly in later years admitted to a relative that Ned had shot Fitzpatrick after he'd made an advance to Kate, though Jim was not there, being in jail at the time. But it is also quite plausible, I suppose. We can never know the complete truth now, and so we cannot be firm about any particular explanation, knowing all involved were less than reliable. But, as mentioned above, some actions seem more likely than others. And what seems highly likely, at the time Ned and Dan went into hiding, is that they did not anticipate Alan or the others being implicated in the altercation by Fitzpatrick, just that they themselves would be targeted. They were shocked and appalled that their mother with her three-day-old baby and the other two, who were likely not even in the house at the time, had been arrested for aiding and abetting attempted murder. But the very unreliable nature of those charges against them had the Kelly boys feeling confident that they would all soon be released. At the later Royal Commission set up to look into the Kelly outbreak, Senior Constable Joseph Mays stated that Fitzpatrick was, quote, a worthless character and the men who recommended him for the police committed a grave offence against the public, unquote. Indeed, within nine months of that incident, Fitzpatrick was dismissed from the force as a perjurer and a drunkard. Official police records stated that he, quote, associated with the lowest persons, could not be trusted out of sight, and never did his duty, unquote. And yet, his testimony was used and resulted in severe sentencing for those involved. For the rest of his life, though, Caulfield reported that he was grieved by the public interpretation of his role in the incident and he could not accept that he was one of the causes of the Kelly outbreak. There's a quote directly from Fitzpatrick on the Culture Victoria website which has him saying, in relation to the Kellys, quote, their whole attitude to the police was one of intense hostility. It was only natural that they should try and blame me for causing the trouble that led to the gang defying the law, unquote. And he's got a bit of a point there as well. The same site also suggests that, quote, his irresponsible and possibly illegal behaviour brought Victoria Police into disrepute and is often unjustifiably presented as an example of the conduct of all Victorian police officers of the day. So even many in the force must have felt badly let down and tarnished by Fitzpatrick's attitude to policing and his behaviour. The respectable police were appalled at having such men in their ranks. Unfortunately, though, the Royal Commission also showed that there were many more unsuitable police put into that greeter area during that time too. I think I've said this once before, the police force at that time was nothing like the professional outfit it would strive to become in the future, and sadly there were many instances of behaviour from force members that were highly unethical and even outright illegal during that period. While the Kellys certainly did display the quoted well-known criminal inclinations, it is hard sometimes to see how they could respect those who were charged with upholding the rule of law in the Northeast when they behaved the way they did. 
Frederick Standish, the Chief Commissioner of Police, went on to comment in May 1880 that while Fitzpatrick had spent less than three years in the force, quote, the ex-constable's conduct during that time he was a member of the force was generally bad and discreditable to the force, unquote. And yet, at the same time, Standish was happy to have such characters representing justice there. I think he might be ignoring the fact that it was his job to staff and train the police force and to set the tone for the organisation. So it's all very unfortunate. Fitzpatrick died in 1924 on May 6th and he was buried at Box Hill Cemetery, which is in Melbourne's eastern suburbs. Following her arrest... Alan spent many miserable cold nights in the cells, certainly no place for a woman just a few days postpartum and no place for a newborn baby. With a harsh cold and wet winter developing, a couple of charitable locals offered to pay Alan surety to get her and the baby out of those freezing cells. But the authorities resisted this for some time and it was only in June that she was finally granted bail. In the meantime, Ned and Dan were living in the former prospector's hut at Bullock Creek again, in the Wombat Ranges towards Mansfield. Since April, they'd been finding enough gold there to provision themselves and to save money for Alan's court case to come. Joe Byrne and Steve Hart, friends from the Greeter mob, were also staying there. With Tom Lloyd coming and going and acting as an information conduit and a useful support to the Kellys. Though Alan and the others were taken into custody in April, their trial did not start until October 9th. The defence did not call Kate or Grace as witnesses to the incident, even though it was not unusual for minors to present evidence those days. Maloney suggests that Ned, possibly still sensitive to Annie's death and dishonour, would have been keen to keep any reference to Kate out of the affair, even as a form of defence, and perhaps believing the case to be so weak, he naively hoped they could rely on the common sense of the jury. And Ned probably was sensitive to the implication that Kate may have encouraged Fitzpatrick in the months prior, Keneally asserts that despite their legal counsel, Mr Bowman, advising the Kellys that the attack on Kate would provide ample justification for the ensuing brawl, Ned still objected to his sister's name being used in his mother's defence. He insisted instead that the evidence of locals Joe Ryan and Frank Harty providing robust alibis to prove Skilling was not actually even present on the night in question would thus render Fitzpatrick's evidence clearly false anyway and the three would be acquitted. So Kate's name and the assault were not mentioned in court. Ned's arrogance and his failure to take legal advice here may have been their undoing. Either way, the defence rested entirely on proving that Bill Skilling was not actually present. But in the end, the court ignored the Skilling evidence and alibis, and the jury was instructed to hold with Fitzpatrick's version. Everybody was stunned. Though assault is a more likely charge to prove than attempted murder, it is possible that with Judge Redmond Barry's record in dealing with the Kellys, he directed the jury away from assault and towards the attempted murder. According to Caulfield, Fitzpatrick's uncorroborated evidence was at variance to every other witness, including the medical opinion on injuries, and yet, in summing up, Judge Barry made no reference to the tenuous nature of Fitzpatrick's unsupported testimony. So, to the great surprise of just about everybody, all three were found guilty of aiding and abetting the attempted murder of Constable Fitzpatrick. The verdict and the sentences astonished the onlookers. Alan was sentenced to three years' hard labour and the men to six years' hard labour. Reports had Judge Barry telling the three that their imprisonment 
would lead to the dismemberment of that lawless greeter group, and had Ned been standing in that place with Alan, he would have sentenced him to fifteen years. So much for the impartiality of the judiciary then, not to mention the rules of evidence. You can see why there's a bit of an unfairness argument. As quoted earlier from Williamson's 1928 letter, it seems that Kelly may have considered attempting to break them out of the Beechworth jail, but if so, that attempt was never made in the end. Alan spent only two more weeks there at Beechworth, and was then moved to the Melbourne jail, where she stayed until the completion of her sentence on February 7, 1881. During her time in prison, her 88 acres at Eleven Mile Creek were declared forfeited, though Maggie and the children must have lived on there. After her release, a fine was paid, oh, five pound, I think, to the Lands Department, and she was allowed to formally reoccupy the selection. The title only became hers in 1893. That's a good 25 years after she first took up the selection. Furious at the unbelievable court case result, the harsh sentence and the continued harassment of friends and family, Ned and Dan decided they would give themselves up to police if their mother was released and left in peace. Pat Quinn was sent into town with that offer, and it was relayed to Sergeant Whelan through a police magistrate, Alfred Wyatt. But the police were totally uninterested in negotiating at all. Despite the police response, Magistrate Wyatt told them if they would give themselves up, he would do his best to get a better deal than those harsh sentences Ellen was given. But with no guarantee of her release, and long sentences a certainty for them, this did not seem like a good deal, and they remained in hiding, fuming again over the unfairness of the system and the duplicity of the police. So the boys once again settled back into Bullock Creek to sluice for gold and possibly run a still again with a view to earning enough money for an appeal for Ellen. Perhaps realising, though, that a clash was now probable, should the police stumble across them, they fortified the hut door and walls, and they spent their spare time practising their aim at the various trees around the hut, using the old weapons they possessed. And despite their poor quality, Ned claimed he could shoot a kangaroo at a hundred yards with every shot. Now that lad was never one to keep his light under a bushel, was he? The police continued to pursue Ned throughout this period, harassing his family and acquaintances, and trying to induce them to inform on him and share the £100 reward for their capture. But all to no avail. Detective Ward, believing that someone would surely take that bait, concluded that, as no one had come forward with information, Ned must have been well out of the area, probably in New South Wales. He could not fathom that so many people would hold such resentment towards the local authorities that they would forego the huge reward and support Ned against them anyway. The authorities just had no idea how much hostility they'd brought upon themselves, and the continued hounding just served to generate all the more loyalty for the Kellys from those who were targeted. When Ned had made his offer of surrender in October, in return for his mother's freedom, it became clear that he must be somewhere local, and so a concerted effort was once again made to find him but they were well hidden in the familiar hills above the area, well out of reach of any less than determined and intrepid search parties. With the hunt intensifying once again, word soon came to Bullet Creek that this time a number of police parties were to be sent into the hills to search for them. Indeed, it was Mansfield's Sergeant Kennedy who agreed with Sadler that getting search parties into the hills would be the most effective approach. 
he suggested, quote, The distance from Mansfield to the King River is so great and the country so impenetrable that a party of men from here would, in my opinion, require to establish a kind of depot at some distance beyond the Wombat, say Stringybark Creek, seven miles beyond Monks. By forming a camp there, it would enable the party to keep up a continuous search between there and the flat country towards the King River, Fifteen Mile Creek and Hollands Creek. While Mansfield men would be doing the ranges and creeks in the neighbourhood, the men forming the greeter party would be operating in the flat country along the rivers and creeks above mentioned. I feel sure that by effectively carrying out this plan, Kelly would soon be disturbed if not captured. Unquote. So the police parties were expected from Greeter and the King River Valley and from the Mansfield side of the ranges. That area was covered in heavy bush and it was very isolated. It was unusual for the police to venture into such rugged country. But it did indeed conceal the hideout of the Kellys and their mates. So they prepared themselves for flight or fight. Despite this rather unsettling news, Joe Byrne and Steve Hart, who'd been with the Kelly boys for some months, opted to stay in the mountains with them too. So the scene was set for a very serious conflict should they be discovered in the ranges there. And the events that did occur shortly would change all their lives and open a shocking chapter in Victoria's history, marking the Kellys as police murderers and outlaws. So we'll finish today's episode at this point. It's been a pretty long podcast this week, but we have got now to the point of the story where the police are closing in on Ned and Dan at their hideout. Next time we'll be looking at the resulting clash with the police search party. Their actions at Stringybark Creek turned them into gazetted outlaws, and I think it defines the sort of formation, or at least the identification, of the Kelly gang. It flags their inevitable path to destruction, from which there would be really no prospect of returning. So thanks once again for downloading the podcast. I'm really enjoying the process, and I hope that you are too. Remember to check for additional material on the Australian Histories podcast website. Uh, My contact details are available on a link from that site also. So that's www.australianhistoriespodcast.com.au and histories is spelt I-E-S. Finally, if you are enjoying the podcast and you have the option to like or to share, I'd really appreciate it if you'd do that for me. It helps boost the podcast so it becomes visible to more people. And I'm sure there's a few more out there that might enjoy a little discussion about Ned Kelly. So it'd be really great to get the word out there. Thanks a lot. Have a great fortnight. And I'll talk with you again in two weeks. Cheers. Cheers.